everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week, my guest is the cultivation director at the Seven Points Cannabis Cultivation Facility in Portland, Oregon, Joseph Rosenberg. Joseph and I have never met in person, but we've been talking, discussing, and occasionally arguing about fish for nearly two decades on a small online fish forum. Over that time, I've known Joseph is a very opinionated person about fish, but he also has the background and the extensive knowledge to back up these opinions. We don't always agree, but we always love to talk. For today's episode, though, Joseph and I definitely agree on the standout status of the show he chose. Joseph picked December 11th, 1999 at the Philadelphia Spectrum. This show reached legendary status very soon after it was played, and it definitely has a legitimate claim to be the best show of the year, if you don't count Big Cypress, of course. Throughout this interview, you'll hear why Joseph agrees with this ranking, about his history of getting into fish at a very young age, and plenty more. So let's take it back to December 11th, 1999 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia with Joseph Rosenberg. Joseph, thanks so much for being on Attendance Bias. How are you doing? Brian, thank you so much for having me, first of all. Uh, I love the podcast already, and it's really a pleasure and an honor to be a part of it. And uh, I am doing great today. I model work a little early and we've got some sunshine and I'm about to talk about one of my favorite topics on earth. Uh, so cheers to that and cheers to you. Well, thank you. And you're in good company uh, because this is obviously one of my favorite topics in the world to speak about. I think we should tell anyone who's listening that you and I, although we've never met in person, we have been talking about fish for, I would say, at least 15 years. Is that right? Yeah. You know, um, it's the, the beauty of technology and just we were of the right age at the right time in the, the spot and place in the world to, to get to link up digitally. And uh, before you know it, two decades have gone by. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long time and Fish has been through a lot in those times and obviously we have as individuals and as fans. So we're going to time travel today back to 1999 and before we get to 1999, I know that you grew up in New Hampshire, and now that you live in Portland, Oregon, and between those extremes of the coasts, how did fish enter your life? I, I want to say that fish first came into the a buzzword in my head um, through my father and uh, you know his cousins and really close friends. They, my parents were pretty young when I was born, so my dad was just 22 years older than me. So when I was 11, he was 33. So right in the, the wheelhouse of going to see the Grateful Dead in the Boston Garden for a few nights every year and, and all kinds of other jam music and stuff like that. So he was the first one to mention the band Fish to me, him and his, his buddies. And they hadn't seen them, just had been hearing about them up and coming. And then, of course, it was high school. Uh, some friends of mine had older siblings. So and, before, hold on, I'm sorry to cut you off, but before when you say you're 11 and now we're in high school, what year is this, just so we can get a sense of where Fish was and the sound and, and where they were in their development? They might have been closer to 13 in 93 when I first heard, heard about them. Um, and then uh, I also started high school when I was 13 in, hmm. in, uh, in 93. I was very young. Um, so around that, around that time period, late junior high, early high school, uh, 93, uh, fish first became a thing that I would hear about. And then, um, 
you know, it was like probably that next year, this first half, the second half of freshman year, first part of sophomore year. And, and uh, some friends, older brothers uh, were talking about going fishing and I didn't really understand it <laughs> yeah. because it wasn't really the time of the year for that. And in retrospect, <laughs> thinking back, like these cats were talking about going fishing in PE class early on right. <laughs> and it all started to make sense a little bit more as I got older. So, um, you know, that's like the 93, 94 time period. It's funny that you brought up that time period because we're separate just by a few years. I think I'm a few years younger than you, but I also got into the band in, I think it was eighth grade. So we have kind of parallel tracks, even though they're separated by a couple of years. I was getting into them in 96, 97, where you were a couple of years earlier than that. And it's amazing when you look from 93 to 97, there's like an entire career there for most bands in terms of the, the change of their sound. Absolutely. Um, and, and I don't want to give off the false impression that I was 14 years old in high school getting deep into fish. I wasn't like I got Singing into fish. burritos at 14. <laughs> Funny you mentioned that. I actually made myself a veggie burrito and sold myself a couple of beers, two for five before the podcast so I could get into that proper <laughs> Really in the mood. Yeah. yeah. Put my old tour shirt on, my old uh, Mike's song, Tough Gong tour shirt. Yep, you know, really wanted to get the feeling. Um, you know, it was probably closer to 95. 96 that you know fish tape started to come into my life so while i'd heard about the band and um had an experience with them that's pretty atypical um earlier than that when i really first started listening was nine probably you know the 95 time period and in like a lot of us it, it was early it was the junta stuff it was contact mm -hmm. hearing a song like contact and wondering what the heck are these guys singing about the the tires are the things you know it's just this yeah. funny little chorus it's such an earworm and then going into the rest of the album, um, especially, you know, Union Federal and just Divided Sky, some of these really long songs and nothing like Contact at all. And um, I think Junta's, I, I don't want to say it's underrated, but it's, it's just such a varied variance of songs on the, on the record and what the band was willing to put out for their first release. I mean, a 25-minute uninterrupted jam on an album is pretty much unheard of, right? Yeah, and it's it could be confusing for a new listener, I would even say, because in sixth and seventh grade, when you think about what we're used to in terms of popular music and what we're able to listen to, whatever's on the radio, for me, it was, you know, hard rock and grunge and all that. And I was getting into classic rock also, but those are like four minute songs, verse, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, close. And my friend Danny and I, who were really getting into fish together, we started our journey. He had a ping pong table at his house. And so he had this five CD changer, you know, the, the apex of technology, music technology at the time. And we would listen to, we would each put in like two discs and someone, you know, whoever, we'd flip a coin, whoever got the third. And Junta would be in there and I would put the Who in there and he would put Zappa in there. And so we, we were getting into our classic rock and fish was like the new kid in our jukebox, you know? And one time, I'll never forget, we were playing ping pong and Iculus from Junta came on. And I just remember, this band has more personality than almost any other group I listen to. As much as I love the music of Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and, you know, name any other that's on classic rock, like, I hadn't heard anything like that. Well, it's funny, uh, just in the four bands you mentioned, Jimi Hendrix, Beatles, The Who, and Zappa, all heavy fish influences. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's so no shock that I like them. Yeah. Yeah, you can see the bridge. 
being created there between one part of your life and, and then the next. And, and of course, the classic rock's never going anywhere. I grew up with that as well. Right. I grew up with parents in the 70s. And, um, you know, it's just interesting to me how those particular four bands, it's, it's, it's easy for me to see why Fish was, was going to be your wheelhouse. Yeah. And I teach middle school. So I'm always around like 11, 12 and 13 year olds as they're also discovering new stuff. And there's always going to be kids. This is why my girlfriend and I talked about this this summer. We pulled, we were in Massachusetts and we pulled into a, um, like a shopping center with a head shop. And I haven't seen like a head shop outside of Greenwich village in years. And I said, how could these places stay in business? And she said, there's always going to be a 12 year old discovering Led Zeppelin. There's always going to be a kid who's new to school or new to high school and thinks that they're the first one to listen to Eclipse by Pink Floyd. Get the tie-dye uh, shirt, get the black light poster, you know? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's stereotypical, but it, it, it's real. Yeah, <laughs> and Fish is, like you suggested, Fish is linked to that sound because that's kind of what they grew up on. Absolutely. I mean, they're a direct result of everything we've just talked about. And, um, you know, and I, w- I would argue that we're all better off for it. <laughs> I, I would agree. Yeah. And so you were getting into fish in, you said like the mid nineties, you said starting really listening around 95. So when did you go to your first show and what do you remember about it? Well, it's kind of a two-parted question and I'll make it brief. Uh, the first time I ever went to any type of fish experience at all, I didn't even go inside. Um, okay. It was in Old Orchard Beach. It was summer of 1994, July. And where's 3rd. Orchard Beach? Uh, Old Orchard. It's in Maine. It's um, okay. it's just right up on the southern coast of Maine, just on the other side of the New Hampshire border, a little bit on the other side of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Portsmouth, Portland, Maine. And um, there's a little minor league ballpark in Old Orchard. My my family grew up there, so it's where we vacationed in the summer all of my childhood was in Old Orchard. And and one year, you know, in '94, I was you know, 13 or 14. And, and my dad's 36, pretty young. And uh, word was that fish, the buzzword all summer was coming to the ballpark to play a show. And, <laughs> and so we used to see bands like Aerosmith. And, you know, a little later on, I remember going to see Hootie and the Blowfish and 311 and all kinds of bands used to come through the ballpark, but sure. fish, fish played there. And, and so we just like strolled over. It's like a mile, mile and a half from where we were. We decided to take the long walk after dinner. And as you're getting closer, you can like hear the music from the ballpark. And, um, and you know, we just kind of like hung out. My dad just wanted, I think, experience a lot a little bit, you know, and he wasn't really going to tell me much about that. He just wanted to go right. get his fix. And, and I, I don't mean fix, fix, you know what I mean. I know and, what you, um, yeah, yeah, we know what you mean. <laughs> and, um, and so we're just like hanging outside the ballpark, listening to the music. It was daylight. So I'm sure it was first set. And, um, you know, he was just like, this is fish. And, didn't even try to get tickets. I'm sure it wasn't sold out. It's probably just a few thousand people there. Probably held ten thousand. You know, and yeah, in the mid '90s, for them to play a minor league baseball stadium, I would almost guarantee that there were tickets still available. Right, like less than five thousand people present, probably. Yeah. you know, and um, so we hung out, and and I just remember some some long stretches of music in the first set without vocals. I think a lot of people probably come to that realization early on. Yeah, um, I, I hadn't had fish tapes at this point yet. You know, in my life, so just long jams were Grateful Dead type of stuff. And I was trying to rebel from my parents probably during that time period. So I was pretty heavily into grunge as well. I really wanted to live in Seattle and really wanted to wear the flannel and the Doc Martens and the whole thing. So Fish was absolutely uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum from where I was musically at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we experienced a little bit of the show and my dad was like really 
amped up on our walk home and he got to like <laughs> see them a lot. And, and, and that was that. And so it was, it was years later, a lot of fish tapes and a lot of experiences later that I actually finally made it to my first show inside. I was, um, out, out of high school by then. So it was uh, in the fall of 97. And oh. um, I was supposed to go to the first night of Worcester, which you did a podcast of already. Right, um, with our friend Casey. Right. And uh, I was supposed to go to that show with my brother and a bunch of our friends. But I remember I got really ill before the show and like couldn't go. And so I missed my first chance to see the band. And, and so then some high school friends, one of their brothers had an extra ticket for Albany uh, a couple weeks later um 12 12 and so i ended up like jumping in the car and had a ticket and ended up seeing my first show in albany on 12 12 97 i know we've talked otherwise about how you've seen hundreds of shows right by this point do i have that correct uh yeah there's i'm over 160 at this point right so and you've traveled all over yeah, you know, I think at one point I I had seen the band in a couple of countries in at least twenty eight different states. Wow! All right, I I haven't really counted the states yet. That I love stats, so that'll be my next uh, my next project. And so on this show specifically, we've had a lot of guests pick shows from nineteen ninety nine, and I listened back to a an episode from early on in, in this this show, and I remember saying that I'm fairly delinquent in 1999 fish and that is no longer the case because i've spoken to at least five i think five people who chose shows from 99 but you're the first person to pick something from that december 99 run everyone loves the summer and for good reason of course but this december 99 had a very distinct feel from that summer tour which was very long so the December 99 tour was made up of 14 shows in 17 days, which sounds absurd nowadays because uh, they always have the three days off and, or the three days and then one day off, et cetera. And I actually jumped on um, for Rochester, so I did the final 11. Oh, all right. So you off. saw by far the majority of the tour. Absolutely. All right. Well, it, it kicked off in December 2nd at the Palace in Auburn Hills. Went south to Cincinnati for two shows, a cut east to Rochester, and then Portland, Maine, I believe, was next, before ending up in Philadelphia December 10th. I'm sorry? Yeah, I was just going to say two nights in Portland, then two nights in Philly. Right, Philadelphia, and then today's show in Philly, and it's. I'll just add this as an addendum. I went to the next night, the night after this show, in Hartford, Mm -hmm. which was the 12th, yeah, and... After that, it went from Hartford to Providence, D.C., Raleigh, and ended in Hampton. And, of course, this entire tour was building up to Big Cypress, right? Oh, I, I would say from the moment we, we stepped foot really like on lot in Rochester, uh, you couldn't help but just like feel the, the swell. Just the intensity was palpable of Cypress was on the way. You know, recently Fish did a, a, one of their, their Tuesday night or Wednesday night dinner in the movies, and it was of the, the uh, Ohio show from Summer 99, where they actually talk about they're going to do their Florida New Year's show. And that was the first time that they had mentioned Florida or New Year's Eve 99 at all. So we were all just waiting right. for it to drop. And, um, and so from that point forward, but especially on the December run, uh, anybody that was going to Cyprus was just... Uh, on cloud nine, just every step you took was two or three feet off the ground. Like all of our dance moves were like levitated in the air. And as the band was just picking up steam, 
we were picking up steam and uh, I, c- I couldn't be more excited about uh, seeing the band of Big Cypress at the time. Uh, my whole friend group, we were all going down in a big caravan. And um, so all of these gigs leading up to that was just like, uh, uh, just, just this build, 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 and then a huge, huge crescendo. So yeah, again, like that December 99 period was one of the my best times of my entire life. And I'm so jealous that you had that experience because I was, like I said earlier, a couple of years younger than you. So I didn't have the, I don't know about maturity, but the resources for sure, but maybe also not the maturity to do something like that. Uh, when I went to Hartford, it was so, it was such a weird experience, but when I looked back doing research for this episode, I can't imagine why we chose Hartford because Hartford was on a Sunday night. This show is on a Saturday that we're talking about today in Philly. Hartford is about three and a half hours or so from New York. Philly's like two hours flat. And it just, it doesn't make any sense looking back. But anyway, I really wish uh, we made the better choice because for years, I thought that Hartford, December 12th, so 99, was like the most unremarkable show, fish show I'd ever seen. I would just like to touch base and, and cut, cut the band a little bit of slack on that night. Um, okay. I think it was that day or the day prior, Trey's grandfather had died. Yeah, he mentions that during, uh, I think, Antelope. Of course, of listening back, it, it does seem a little flat. I, the, the sets were a little short. Although that was kind of the theme, this tour too, a little bit shorter sets on some yeah, nights. Yeah, I noticed you know. that about this Philly show, that the sets are kind of short. This show, though, I will say... Some of the best sets they've played have been around an hour five, hour ten. I feel and like that goes band- back. I saw them in um in the Colise- at the Nassau Coliseum in October, and I think the first set on the eighth was literally fifty nine minutes. And when yeah. I got the tapes, I'm like, wait a minute, this can't be right. There's still a half hour left on this tape. Absolutely, I remember. It's funny that show. I, I was there too, and I remember when they busted into Antelope. The, the set was so young, in my opinion. I was like, oh, mid-set antelope. But it ended the set because the set ended at an hour. Right. <laughs> you know, and it was like, okay, I think that this was pretty short. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel like that, that show opened up with just like jam after jam after jam. And when that's kind of the case, I'm perfectly comfortable with a set that runs an hour, hour five, hour ten, if they're really hitting it, compared to a set that's going to go an hour thirty with maybe some shtick or maybe a Fishman tune, or which I'm into, but I'd rather, I always went for the meat, you know? And it's funny when talking about late December compared to mid, I'm sorry, late 99 compared to mid 99. I, like I said, I've learned a lot about the band sound during 99, but December 99, I'm still a bit unacquainted with in the summer. I I feel like they were kind of firing on all cylinders, if not always at the same time that they could play at a million miles per hour and then just stop on a dime and then practice their dynamics by slowing and getting spacey and then next thing you know like at um at oswego they're playing cat scratch fever in the middle of an iculus and it's bonkers and everyone's losing their mind and then there's uh, a mic song that just takes off into outer space and comes back like this sonic wormhole and then in december 99 it seems a lot spacier it seems a lot more ambient and there was ambience in the summer, but it seemed to be the focus of December 99. You've heard a lot more of these shows than I have. Is, am I wrong on that? Or do you have another view of it? No, no, I think you're dead on. And uh, to tell you the truth, I think it started, that, that kind of sound started at the beginning of like the fall tour. Because mm-hmm. uh, we, we, did all, we did the entire summer tour, my brother and I. We did all 20 or 21 shows or whatever. And, um, you know, around the beginning of that fall tour, 
they kind of kicked it back a notch. And I wasn't sure if that was part of the West Coast vibe because West Coast shows are different than East Coast shows. They just are. Definitely. Have, having seen a bunch everywhere and a, a good majority of my shows over the last 12 to 15 years have all been on the West Coast. I think uh, maybe that had something to do with their style of playing. Of course, they played with Phil that fall. And I feel like anytime they have a, a really prominent guest, their sound will kind of shift in, in the shows, maybe either just before or after that guest. Um, and, and Phil definitely classifies as a prominent guest. I think that was a, a, a hallmark moment for everybody to get to see him on a trampoline there. You definitely know? And, unforgettable. Um, but then listening back to a lot of the shows, there's a really long boogie on in Southern California from that tour. I don't remember the date. And, um, you know, they were playing really long jams, but they weren't the breakneck kind of jams that we were hearing on the summer tour. Right. And, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. And, and we were all about that. We kind of felt like it was a little bit more of like what they were doing in 98, a little bit more of that ambient textured stuff was, was starting to peek through. It could have been that they started playing tab songs too, because God of Jabu and sand really came into the mix. Yeah. Um, those aren't songs where Trey is just going to machine gun over. Those are songs that are designed to build a soundscape, build the layers step by step, and then like slowly climb the pyramid. And so when December came around, um, you know, I think the band was, they were still shapeshifters. They were, they were just doing whatever they were feeling like. They had big cypress on the horizon. They had the bull by the horns. And, um, and I was just uh, really, really noticing that their slower, their slower, more methodical, more layered sound started earlier than I thought. So stepping into set one of December 11th, 99 at the Spectrum, at Core States at the time, the Core States Spectrum in Philly, my first thought was when there's questions on like fish Facebook groups or uh, forums, fish forums, the questions like, you know, construct your dream set lists, like your fantasy, like fantasy tour, like your fantasy set list. This first set looks exactly like I would imagine most people's would look. You know, it, it opens with Harry Hood and goes straight into Mike's simple week And it's like, but wait, stop. You know, like, how do you, how do, you do that? Every song in this first set sounds like we're deep in the second set already. How did this Harry Hood hit you guys when it started? Do you remember any of this? It's funny. I remember all of the openers, really. From that whole run, I've got vivid memories of almost every night. But this particular night and the night before, which the 10th and the 11th are inextricably tied together. We'll, we'll mostly talk about the 11th here. But, you know, the 10th opened with Tweezer. And, you know, they had done that a few times back in 97. They opened up, you know, a couple of nights with Tweezer early and late in that December tour. So it wasn't like, oh, man, this is a, the first time they've ever done this. But it was still, you know, okay, Tweezer opener in Philly, let's get down to business. So the next night, you know, we didn't really know what to expect. I mean, they, they were kind of all over the place um, all summer and all fall with openers. So they come out and they drop the lights and right away, um, listening back on these audience tapes. And I'm really glad I got to listen to an audience version recording of this because for me personally, getting to hear the crowd swells, knowing that I was part of that just still gives me the chills. And, um, and so no one expected Hood. I don't, no one back in fantasy tour days, no one picked hood as their opener. No one, no one got that one right. You know? Um, I mean, there was a lot of talk at set break about the show after that point, but most of it was about the hood and people were trying to guess when the last hood opener was. And I didn't know, I just remember that it was a long time ago because I had read the almanac 
the fish almanac, the farmer's almanac a few times through uh, during my, my formative years of the band. And so I, I always had a thing for dates and set lists and yeah, me too. And, and all of that stuff. So knowing full well, my memory was good on, on the topic at that time of my life. I, I was pretty sure that it had been in the eighties, but no one knew that it had gone all the way back to 85, you know, and it was, it was madness. It was, it was a party. It was celebration. Yeah. And this is a solid hood. It has that kind of extended intro with, I couldn't think of a better phrase than slide whistle kind of effects, like whirring slide whistle during it. Um, if I didn't know better, I would guess that we were at the second set closer as opposed to the first set like, opener. Right? And and even during the jam, like when it's really peaking, they've got this vibe of, we've been playing for two and a half hours. We're in the zone right now. Yeah, and there's no warm up. No warm up to just come out and just drop this long introed hood, a lot of uh fun interplay. Um, you know, Trey misses the Harry to enter the yeah, song because yeah. the band is like so amped up about just playing and the crowd swells going on during the song. Well, yeah, I wrote that down that there are in, in my notes were in quotes insane crowd reactions, and especially there's a peak at about 17 minutes in that they're really just nailing it and the whole crowd just goes so loud. Like you said, when you're hearing it on an audience tape, you really get the feel as if you're sitting in your seat. Right. And it's, if I remember correctly, it's Trey is really delivering at the time. Yes. You know, definitely. And you're 16 minutes into a Harry Hood show opener and Trey is delivering. And it's just, uh, it's involuntary at that point that you're just screaming out. It's, <laughs> yeah. That's what the band is eliciting as a reaction. And, and that's about as good as it gets, in my opinion, with Fish. That's why we go is to be able to experience that type of involuntary reaction to the music. Yeah. And, more involuntary reactions. Next is a Mike's groove. Oh boy. Again, in the first set right away. And it's, so it's Mike's simple week apog, which is very common. Hydrogen uh, also. In, in that. Oh, that's right. Mike's simple hydrogen week apog. Mike's song was very good. It was a very good year for dark Mike songs. 1999 was. Yeah. Like I, I want to say like driving and like just um, dissonant dark like the red lights are going on at the show yeah. during these gyms yeah and, and it's uh, very much with page on his organ that remind that kicks me back automatically to 1999 when i hear mike doing their like do 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 and page on his organ yes. backing him up that like to me i'm like autumn that's better than a delorean for and me trey's, to be in another place and trey's almost doing a little bit more of like some screeching stuff than like melodic stuff and they're just just really creating this for them, it's almost like an industrial style soundscape, almost as industrial as they ever would have gotten. You know, they were working as a unit. They, no one was taking solos or trying to uh, be a hero of the moment. Everybody was just working towards this deep, dark pocket to where something's going to bubble up from it. And then after Simple, 
I wrote that he has a lot of, Trey does have a lot of long sustained notes, which was not always the case in 1999. Sometimes his playing was schizophrenic. It wasn't always as patient as it appears in this show. And then there's some very beautiful melodic playing around seven minutes in. And before long, they're reaching for the heavens. It's so great. And then by the end, they quiet down again, which is wonderful. You know, it really just goes back to the idea it sounds like a band that had already been playing for about an hour and 45 minutes, this show. They were at that spot where they were so incredibly comfortable of dropping this, um, this somewhat delicate simple, you know, um, it's not a, it doesn't get to 96 fall chaos and madness. It stays right. It stays pretty true to itself. I just remember looking around and, you know, we're talking about Hood, Mike Simple at this point, and people were just like blissed out, kind of just like looking around, uh, awe, awe-inspired at what's going on. This is a first set, and everybody is just feeling like they're on top of the world. Right. And then after Simple is Hydrogen, which is standard and well-played, and it closes with Weekapog, which was very, very fast. I wrote, this is what I think of when I think 1999 is a sick peak at four minutes, pushing the boundaries again at four minutes. What a shot of adrenaline. Absolutely. Huge energy throughout this. Trey started pushing, like you were saying, somewhere in the four to five minute period. So there's a nice bit of opportunity for the band to, to get to communicate to each other, see where they wanted to, to take it. And then Trey takes the lead on this one, which he's been known to do on Week of Paul Groove. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, I just remember about this jam live, that, you know, we haven't really talked about Corona a whole lot, but, you know, being indoors in the wintertime, you get to experience the full, full throttle Corona, both sets. And um, during this week of Paw Groove was the first time where you almost feel like weightlessness in your stomach, like, like that good type of anxiety, that good type <laughs> yeah, of anxiousness. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're doing it right, you feel that way. Yeah, the good type of anxiousness where like Corona was absolutely in sync and just the way that he was flashing these lights around the band as Trey just kept pushing during the week of Pog Groove was just something that I won't ever forget. the band was delivering and the crowd is again going off crazy during this week of Paul groove. And I remember when it was over, as it started to wrap up, um, as they're heading back to the lyrical section, I remember thinking, I, I need to get some water right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably felt that way. And the band had your back because they played when the circus comes to town, you know, kind of a chill out, a breather. And you talk about the band communicating. Mike was even hitting the fight bell in between week of Pog. And when the cir- you know, that's him saying, we're in like this is for real and after circus they bring it back up with scent of a mule which has a really cool jam halfway through better i think than the usual tray and page mule duel there's like this whole mid-eastern at least those my ways my words of saying it. absolutely you know and and mule kind of has well, i don't want to um i don't want to transgress too deeply but i do just want to touch on circus i would never go to get water during circus i think it's my favorite cover ballad that they do I think so. I was thinking that too. 
and I just love that song so much. And for some reason, whenever I hear it, I'm always sent right back to the lemon wheel, like that really emotional trace solo. It'll always have a special place in my heart. So I was probably too busy giving everybody that I could see hugs. And then when, when Mule started up, I knew I had about four minutes, maybe five until the weirdness. And so that was when I ran to get my water, you know, um, I'll sacrifice the opening of Mule over the beauty of, of circus anytime. Just wanted to put that on record. Um, yeah, we have it. We have it down. <laughs> absolutely. So yes, Mule kicks in, and you know you never know what to expect with Mule, right? I, it, who's going to duel? Which way is it going to go? Is it going to be totally chaotic? And you just know it's going to be about ten to fifteen minutes, and you're probably never going to see anything like it again. And and that was this. The band is often inspired to change the tempo, change the beat, uh, in order to move away from the clap progression. And I feel like when that happened, that's when we got this really super interesting full band jam. There was no duel per se, you know, really yeah. atypical, but no specific duel until Trey comes in with those familiar licks a few minutes before they take it to the end. Uh, so yeah, so I, I classify this as an atypical mule. I agree. And I loved it. I listened to it a number of times. I listened to this whole show twice or three times in preparation for this, but the mule I kept going back to that jam, I think it's about two and a half minutes right in the middle of the song that I, I, I never heard a scent of a mule like that. So that anytime that happens, it's, it's worth noting. And they closed the set already with Cavern. I said it feels like a really quick set, although the first half was extraordinarily powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and when, when Cavern hit up, you know, uh, one thing I, I took in my notes is that I, I had no idea how long the set was at this point. So no one really knew if this was going to end it or not. And, you know, the band had been doing kind of like uh, some, some fake closers where they would like drop a rocky top on top of something or drop a squirming coil out of nowhere, you know. So we weren't really exactly sure what was, they just opened the show with Hood, right? So who knows what right, the fuck right. they're going to close All bets are way. off. And, you know, um, we just remember the driving energy of Cavern Fish um, way back long before I was like going to shows or planning on seeing shows. Just this was one of those first, you mentioned uh, Picture of Nectar early on in your development and you know it obviously was for me too and you know it was just uh there's just something about picture of nectar and these songs on it and so just always glad to hear it you know yeah. I, I think we were probably hoping maybe they dropped the extra lyrics those they had been doing that a couple of times the last couple of years 97 98 that extra verse you know i turned the blade the back knife on, on her tongue right yeah slashed her on her tongue exactly but uh that was not meant to be this night maybe because trey couldn't remember any of the words well yeah okay I was, forget extra <laughs> lyrics he forgot the actual lyrics oh, but classic it wouldn't be a cloud right it wouldn't be a classic fish show <laughs> if that didn't happen you know he always forget not always but it seems it feels like he always does it in the best shows and of course at the end we'll be back in 15 minutes Oh yeah, right. You know, uh, we'll, we'll see you when you see you. No rush. Yeah, right, just, right. Just make it. Just make it worth it. And I forgive you. Well, we forgive you for the lyrics because um, that set was baller. And then set two begins with "Boogie on Reggae Woman," which has another lyric flub, but that's totally fine because the lyrics to "Boogie on Reggae Woman" are kind of interchangeable anyway in the beginning, and you can feel it. You could feel that something fun is really building because the tempo is perfectly groovy. Mike steps forward at around five minutes and it gets really funky with great cymbal play with Fishman. Fishman, for most of the show, is just very solid and straight, you know, as much as he could be anyway. But in this boogie on, he really, his cymbals really do a lot of talking. Absolutely. You know, and 
Um, if I could just take one second to talk about set break. This yeah, was, sure. So we're up in our section. We're taking a breather. All of a sudden, there's this one dude, and it's one guy both nights, one single guy. Uh, he gets up, and he's, he starts motioning for people. He's trying to start the wave. Mm-hmm. And he, on the night of the 10th, he succeeded. And then on the night of the 11th, you know, we're like, here's this dude again. He's going to try to start the wave again, of course. And he does, and he succeeds again. And, and I'll tell you that it's set break. The lights are up, and everybody's, like, trying to take a break from what just happened. And there's, like, 20,000 people doing the fucking wave at set break for, like, 10 or 12 minutes at least. Like, and, it's like it would, and as it was going around, like, that part of the venue was, like, cheering. So there's, like, this constant scream and the wave, and, and it just – just goes to, to tell about the energy level of everybody there that night. Like everybody in attendance was, was just really ready to get it from the minute we walked in. Didn't that didn't recede during set break at all, you know, and then this, this wave, just this enormous wave at set break and been to a lot of shows since that time, never saw the wave again, you know? So it just really? was one of those, one of those really beautiful moments that I'll always remember about fish was that, you know, they're even set break. Everybody was getting as rowdy as they could. So back yep. to the show here. So yes, yeah, so boogie, so boogie on. on. Exactly how I want set two to start. Um, yeah. They've been playing long extended versions all year. And, you know, I, no one knows if it's going to be a five minute or a 20 minute version of anything at this point. So let's just see what happens. And, um, you know, they finish set one with some lyrical miscue. They start up set two with some lyrical miscue. <laughs> Again, I'm fine with that. If you're going to bring the heat, I don't care about the words to tell you the truth. Right, uh, right. Trey was smiling so heavily during the, the lyrical fuck up parts where, you know, it just makes it real, right? It just, it just yeah. humanizes the guy. And like, yes, he's this virtuoso and he's one of the main reasons, one of the four main reasons we're all there, but he's just a guy, man. And, you know, he's going to make mistakes and he's going to, he's going to capitalize on those errors. And, and I do feel like a lot of the times that Fish was in a really good headspace when there was like a miscue that's when they really take it to the next level. I agree. And so, so send it. I'm all bored. Yeah, and then the next level comes when they play Sneak and Sally. It takes a minute for Trey to get that guitar progression down, but once he does, the crowd goes nuts, and he's so smooth. It's so funky, and it's so smooth. It comes back to the chorus, and then it kind of fades out with 90, like 1999 loops. I can't think of another way to put it. That's I, it. I agree. There's a little bit of that. There might be a little bit of that funk siren, like behind the scenes going on. And there's a couple of layers, but you know, the Sally, I remember so, so specifically, like, so they come on a boogie on and they, they hit the first couple of chords and we're thinking ACDC bag and then mm-hmm. sneaking Sally. And then it was like, it's kind of muddled. Um, there's, I don't know if you controversial is a good way to put it, but there's definitely different schools of thought about what was going on with the band during like this song segment. Were they discussing, arguing? Were, was there some type of musical battle going on on stage? You know, because it certainly seemed like, um, it certainly seemed like to me, like there was a couple of members of the band that wanted to take it to ACDC. But Trey was the one that was really kind of mostly playing the Sneaking Sally theme and melody, but he was in the wrong key. Yeah. And so the yeah. band's like, you want to play this song, but you're not even in the right fucking key, man. Like, we're going to take it another direction. And then they do finally, they do finally take it to that, to the B chord, you know, and they, they send it into to Sneak and Sally. But for a couple of minutes there, maybe a, a good 45 seconds, it was totally up in the air what song they were going to play. And at the end, it fades out kind of spacey 99 typical stuff into Ghost, which is 
I think the highlight of this set, either this or the next one, uh, 2001, but this is really where things lift off uh, for this set at least. I, I couldn't agree more. And honestly, this was probably um, one of the hottest, if not the hottest segment of the entire tour of the 11 shows that I saw. Um, it's one of the main reasons why I really wanted to talk about this show was, mm-hmm. was the energy, the vibe of the crowd, which we've gotten into quite a bit. Cause you know, one thing we haven't mentioned over every song is that like throughout the first set and into the second set, there are just random crowd bursts, just random swells yeah. through the crowd. And you know, glow sticks were definitely very much a thing at this point still. They were kind of trending out, but you know, the glow stick, great, the great glow stick wars of 20, uh, I'm sorry, 20, 1997 and 98 were kind of a thing of the past, but they were still happening to smaller degree during 99. And so a lot of those crowd swells are when Kuroda would cut the lights and the glow sticks start popping off. When the Sally starts to break down into its ambient outro, you know, about a minute before, maybe a minute and a half before Mike, Mike clearly is on the level that we're taking this into ghost and, you know, you can follow along with Mike and, and, um, and then as they start to bring it down and they start to get into the ghost proper, uh, there's an, obviously a giant crowd swell there because that's about a, as smooth of a segue, I think, as you're going to find. Yeah, I, I thought when I was listening to it, if only every time could be like this. And that's not to suggest that it's ever sloppy. That's not what I mean. But it was just so perfect. It was as if someone were had planned it out. But you know, at the same time, you know it wasn't. I just, it just felt so right when they I, transitioned into Ghost. Exactly. Like it was manifested in the stars for this set to be at this spot in this part of our lives here, you know, and once they're through the, once you're through the lyrical section of ghost, I feel like, you know, there's a, there's a segment where everyone is starring. They're all doing their own thing independently and it's working so well as a cohesive unit. Like this is a band that is dialed in, that has played, you know, 55 shows or 60 shows already this year. And, you know, they're, they're coming out on fire. They played a bunch of shows this run, you know, and it was almost hypnotic, I feel like. And, yeah. you know, seven minutes in, things start to get pretty psychedelic. Page moves to the clav a little bit. And I think at that point, you know, we're looking at each other going, okay, this is going to be one of those jams. I think this one's going to go long. Yeah. And you're right. It has something for everybody. You're right about Mike kind of digs deep and then Page uh, takes over and then Mike modulates to match Page and then they hung, hang on to a groove. Trey joins in on top before it reaches this kind of major key, what nowadays would be called bliss jamming. most of it mike is still hanging on to that ghost baseline and it just seems like the whole universe is swirling around while he's as a 
bass player does in rock music is just kind of holding it down. And then toward the very end of it, this is December 99 to me. This is what I hear in my head when I think of this, this part of the band's career. It just kind of, Fishman drops out around 15 minutes and it's, I don't like this phrase that I wrote, but I said complete noise. It's a soundscape. And it's, it's a funny, soundscape. Like... The band is kind of, it, I, I felt like at the time and I felt like listening back now the band was creating a sound track to what was happening inside the venue so during the ghost around 14 minutes in people started connecting glow rings into the giant snakes like they started uh, the glow on worm, I'll have you know right the glow worm right so <laughs> I, I want to say it started on New Year's Eve 98 that was the first time I ever saw yeah it, I remember that yeah we're sending the glow all up into the, the they were it really huge long, yeah. crawling all over like giant octopuses right and so that was happening at this show too on the floor uh, as Ghost was really getting into the like the 12, 13, 14 minute mark. So as the band starts to take it out into the the dissonance and the in the deep space that would would formulate the 2001 intro, uh, there's just what's going on on the floor was probably a hell of a thing to see. And Paige and Mike are just like destroying it, and Trey's just probably on his keyboard creating more layered effect. I I don't really have a memory of like Trey specifically on stage at this point because we were all just captivated by the glow snakes, but um, you know, I, I do want to say that he was December 99. That was like the heyday for Trey's mini keyboard set. Right. I want to say. Yeah. So, yeah. And this is for a very specific type of taste. I mean, I like it cause I kind of, I enjoy like spacing out to soundscapes and stuff, but I could see, and I had this thought at a couple of shows in 2000, how this could be kind of be off putting for certain fans where there, there's nothing to hold on to. There's no center. Certainly. Like those folks that started seeing the band in the early 90s and it basically like stopped seeing the band by 96, this type of gym wasn't for them. Right. You know, but, you know, for those of us that got on a little bit later into the mid to late 90s with some of the chaos and the David Bowie's and the Tweezer Fest and everything like that, this is just a culmination of that. And of course, when it builds and drops into a, a 15 minute powerhouse of 2001, it all, to me, I felt like 2001 probably started about four minutes earlier than it, than it did. And ghost might've ended a few minutes earlier than the track listing has, yeah. you know, but I think you're just, uh, you know, you're just picking nits at that point. Yeah. Well, yeah. It depends on where in the space section you decide the next track begins. Right. Uh, but 2001 is another perfect call. We were like already in the cosmos, you know, so it's like, we're ready for more of this. Page keeps his synthesizers going in the intro, and the intro is very extended, which was normal, I think, for the time period in the late 90s. You know, you listen back to 2001 from like 93 when it debuted for Fish, and they're like three minutes. The entire song is like three Yeah, minutes. the whole thing is literally like a three-minute right. track. But here, I don't even think they go to the, the 2001 chorus until like six minutes in. Maybe even later, it might even been seven and a half or eight minutes to tell you yeah. the truth. That's something that, that they started doing in the last couple of years prior. That was 2001, I, I think, could be up there with one of the songs of the year in both 97 and 98. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And during this intro, Trey is like subtly using his wah. He's kind of like speed funk jazz jamming, I guess. Um, 
Fishman is using his cymbal bell, which is very tasteful. And then after the first chorus, it's like more, there was more like jazz funk that we heard kind of in the beginning of that ghost jam. You know, it kind of comes back. Like they weren't done with it. In the second section? Is that what you're talking about? Of 2001, yeah. Yeah, you know, and in, in, man, like one of my fondest memories uh, is Mike has this bass line. Um, I'm not exactly sure how deep into the jam it is. It might be around 10 minutes um, where he's just hitting this like, this like really funky descending bass line. And it's just one of the best pieces of bass playing that I think he, he's done in 2001 and, and yeah. all the great ones. second segment specifically like coming out of everything that had happened this set and Mike's just up there like owning that section of the jam it was just purulation just just hugs all around like fucking party time like woohoo I I was blown away by it I loved it so much yeah it's some of Mike's best playing of the night absolutely on a night where I feel like Mike might have been the hero of this night uh starting from Harry Hood he was in my opinion he was the winner the best player of that jam and all throughout the rest of the show I feel like this was one of those nights where man Mike was just on point and um you know during this song during the second part of the the jam before the second 2001 chorus Kuroda had cut the lights and there's glow sticks going again and so you can hear giant crowd swells a lot of the crowd swells are when Kuroda would cut the lights you know, and then like the, ba- uh, the the crowd would light up the band in their own unique way. And and that definitely happened during this version of the jam. I just remember it being so dark that like you could barely even see. And I just love that about indoor shows so much. It's my favorite. And again, I can't believe we're already at the end is Down With Disease, which is usually the second set opener, not the second set closer. Yeah, almost like they're working in reverse here, right? Right, um, yeah, hood opens, right? I mean, realistically, uh, this was one of those nights where, you know, outside of the 2001, it, it does kind of feel like the sets were reversed. And there are some of those nights where you kind of feel a little bit cheated in the second set if they really blow out the first set like they normally would have set two. But this was one of those nights where, no, both sets were pretty powerhouses. And, um, you know, I take down disease to close set two, and I've seen it a few times in that spot. To me, that means that, Whatever just happened, Trey was feeling it. Like, yeah, Machine Gun Trey made Trey an appearance. Trey was feeling it. Yeah, he was absolutely 100% on board with what the band just laid down, and he wants an opportunity to rip a, a, a hole through the space-time continuum and the fabric of life and allow us to, to basically digest everything that just happened with one of the, the most beautiful fish licks, fish riffs, like in the, in the arsenal is the Down With Disease riff, you know, and... The jam itself was, you know, 10 or 12 minutes, pretty concise. They take it to, you know, it's really like a, it's a type one jam, you know, bottom line. It's, it's type one. I don't really think they take it too far out, but. Yeah, but they also, you know, Trey throws all of, or the band does throw all their tension and release tricks in there for this. Sure. This isn't like a, 
in 94, I feel like there were a lot of down with disease type one jams that were like seven minutes long and it was just pedal to the metal the whole time. No, exactly. And, you know, the band really, really kicks it into a, a pretty high gear early on. And then as they're working through, you know, how they want to attack like the meat of the jam, uh, you know, five, six minutes in, Trey starts to, Trace kind of starts to communicate to the band that he's going to step up. He starts yep. to play a few more notes and then a few more notes. And then before you know it, I mean, Trey is just playing his most frantic playing of the entire night, even eclipsing the Weekapog group. Well, yeah, earlier. I was right about to say, it reminds me of Weekapog from earlier. Yeah. And he's, Trey's just letting everybody know like, hey, this might've been one of those nights where there was a lot of full band jamming, a lot of uh, full sound, a lot of uh, soundscapes. Uh, but I still have a few tricks up my sleeve and we're going to, you know, send everybody into the encore super high energized. Cause that was the theme of the night. Like the energy never relented. Um, there was no cool down song this set. Right. Um, you're right. You're right. When then in set two, it's ghost and down with design. I mean, I guess ghost of course was the latest song played on any of their records, but yeah. there was no would be farmhouse songs for the entire show. And that was really, really rare for 99. Yeah. And about that encore was possum, which, you know, no surprises there, but again, not even possum was typical this night. There was secret language signs. Secret that, language. Yeah, yes. which I hadn't heard since like 92 oh, in possum, man, I, you know? I don't really remember another time hearing one. Uh, I'd have to look back through all of the, the show notes, of course, and I might have caught one somewhere, somewhere along the way, but I don't recall ever hearing another one. And And I remember being so focused in that as soon as you hear the first trill and then Mm -hmm. Trey hits the second trill and then he's cueing everyone in, you know, he hits the four descending notes for the all fall down signal. And, you know, I think I was probably one of 10 people that like went to the floor and this is the spectrum and it's disgusting. And the floor is yeah, an awful is. place to be. <laughs> it's, Philly. it's like maybe the worst floor in the country to like hang out on for any amount of time. And, you know, was glad to do it. Um, you know, and at this point I, I wasn't played out on possum. I had no problems hearing possum. I didn't think that it was one of those songs that was going to make me, have a restroom break or, you know, I know maybe they played a lot in 3.0. It's one of those tunes where people are a little tired of it, but at this stage, 12 minute encore possum with a secret language after a show like this. I mean, I, I, a wise fan once told me a long time ago that you cannot judge a show by the encore. The encore is only a cherry on top. It's only bonus. Like you can take a show on its merit of what happens in set one or two, but you know, kind of rule the encore as its own thing. And so I, I really just stopped paying attention to encores at that point in my yeah. life. And so now um, sometimes they're great. Sometimes it's, you know, a little lackluster, whatever. It's not about that for the band. It's not about that for me. And looking at overall, this is an excellent show. Almost every song in the first set felt like we were deep in the second set. And the second set went so quickly that it was, there was never a time to let up. It was so thrilling. It was always interesting. Personally, I thought Hood was my highlight for set one and Ghost for set two. And the best part of it all, when you take a step back, seeing the forest for the trees, I thought the show was very representative for what they did in 1999. It was super fast rock jams paired next to slow, spacey, ambient soundscapes. I couldn't agree more. You know, yeah. um, if somebody were asking me, does this show have any best ever versions? No, there's not a single best ever version of anything played on this night, but that's not really what this show is about. This show was about unbridled energy and it was from the minute everybody walked into the venue to the minute that the possum ended. Um, you know, there was no letdown. 
again, no breather song in the entirety or set two. Like, who do these guys think they are? Like the Disco Biscuits at this point? Like, they're just <laughs> going to play a five, four songs over an hour with no break. And it's like running a marathon. You're tired after that. You know, I, I saw pretty much all the great shows that 725.99 and then that Boise show and the Phil show. But this was my show of the year that I saw. Of all the shows I saw besides Cypress, this, in my opinion, was the best show of 1999, top to bottom. Anyway, uh, what a what a couple of nights, man. Just uh, lucky to have lucky to have been in attendance on this one. And now it's time for the attendance bias fact check. Joseph's first fish experience, where he toured the lot with his dad at the ballpark in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, was on July 3rd, 1994. There's a beautiful recording of this show on fish.in. The show features the first electric version of the old home place, a stunning Reba that features Somewhere Over the Rainbow right in the middle of the jam, and a wild split open and melt complete with a tease of Jimi Hendrix's Third Stone from the Sun. For the Old Orchard Ballpark, Joseph estimates that it holds probably about 10,000 people. But according to Wikipedia, the park actually holds just 6,000 people. I could not find any data as to whether or not the fish show that summer was sold out, but I would still bet that it wasn't. When Joseph was talking about how many times he's seen fish, I said that I would have to look up how many states I've seen them in. After some further research, it turns out that I've seen them in 16 states and Mexico. I still have a way to go before matching Joseph's count of 28 states. During our discussion of the fall and December 1999 tours, Joseph brings up the time when Phil Lesh came on stage with the band. This show was on September 17, 1999 at the Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California. Phil came on toward the end of the second set for a bass jam at the end of You Enjoy Myself. He played Wolfman's Brother, Cold Rain and Snow, and then an encore of Viola Lee Blues. And yes, Phil did jump on the trampoline for You Enjoy Myself. The long boogie on reggae woman that Joseph was thinking of was from the night after Phil Lesh on September 18, 1999 at the Coors Amphitheater in Chula Vista, California. That night, boogie on opens set two and goes for over 22 minutes. It's a definite must listen for any fan. This show, December 11th, 99, opened with Harry Hood. Joseph mentions that the last time Harry Hood opened a show was in 1985, that show was way back on October 30th, 1985, and not only did Hood open that show, but it's the first known live version of the song. That's it for the fact check, and that's it for today's episode. I would like to thank Joseph Rosenberg of Seven Points Cannabis in Portland, Oregon, Fish.net for providing all the info we'll ever need, and Fish.in for supplying all of the clips throughout this episode. Please support Attendance Bias by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your podcast app of choice. Failing that, how about just telling one person about the show? You find one person who might be interested, give them a heads up, and you've helped out this show immensely. Once again, I am Brian Weinstein, and thank you for listening. See you next time on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.